Hi, everybody. Josh Wiggler here with the first official regular season Game of Thrones book club podcast and a preliminary spoiler warning before the secondary spoiler warning. This is the podcast where we talk about Game of Thrones from the perspective of people who read the books. So all book material is fair game here. We also discuss material from season-long trailers, episode previews, casting notices, and a little bit of gossip here and there. So if any of that sounds dark and filled with terrors to you, turn around now. No harm, no foul. Feedback show is out there, spoiler-free. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Game of Thrones Season 6, Episode 1 is over, but we're just getting started here in the Game of Thrones Book Club Season 6 edition. It's starting. It's happening now for realsies. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wigler. We're here. We're here with Terry Schwartz right now. Terry, what's going on? Not too much. We're like we're in the thick of it already. I feel like Game of Thrones season five just ended, and now we have one episode under our belts. It kind of feels like that, at least in terms of book club podcast, because we only did two in the off season. We really shame, shame, shame on us. Yeah, yeah. I must confess that that was really shameful. <laughs> but we're back. We've been busy. We've been busy doing good stuff, though. We've been busy. We've been working. Terry uh, is working at IGN. She is a great, great valued asset at IGN, covering Game of Thrones and all sorts of TV shows there. I'm like a mediocrely valued asset. Um, at the- no, I was just going to start talking you up. Josh <laughs> is kicking butt over at the Hollywood Reporter, doing all their Game of Thrones coverage, yeah. and it's awesome. And I'm jealous of it every week. So I need to, you know, come up with some backhanded sand snake type uh, stuff. Are you going to, like, stab me through the back of the skull? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Listen, if you we're now competitors, no, I'm kidding. We're oh, both God. on the same team. And uh, your stuff has been awesome, though. You've you've been kicking butt, and I've loved reading your interviews and thoughts on Game of Thrones. And now we get to talk about it. Yes, now we get to talk about it. So both Terry and I have been super busy talking about Game of Thrones, not here on Post Show Recaps, but in other places. We'll post links to that in the show notes so you guys can read everything that we've been up to. But we're back here now. Book Club, some of you guys are wondering, is the book club gone? forever book club's not gone forever we're still here here. every week we're here every week we're gonna be here every week for the regular season here of game of thrones very exciting stuff i know it's also kind of weird because isn't this supposed to be the season where there's nothing about the books that we can talk about because can i tell you how there is no book six yet there's one moment in the the first episode and actually so josh and i had a chance this is a little humble braggy but we had a chance to see it at the actual los angeles premiere together and you were sitting in front of me and one specific thing happened in the episode where i was like i need book club i need book club i, I need to talk with people about this and we'll get into that but i've i've needed this episode it's been a catharsis for me it's we 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 definitely had a few moments there where we were like oh my god all right we're gonna have a lot to talk <laughs> about. but this is supposed to be i mean when we're talking about the game of thrones book club podcast here if this is your first time listening this is the place where we talk about game of thrones the show from the perspective of people who have read a song of ice and fire the book series by george R. R. martin on which the show is based uh typically we've got a lot to talk about from that perspective this season it should be less the show is caught up to slash veering away from the books in many of the major storylines but not all of them there was a little bit of activity in the comments section 
on the Game of Thrones live show that we recorded here on Poster Recaps on Sunday night between myself and Rob Sesternino. This was a comment from Laws, who wrote in, Josh was really underselling how much book readers know this season. Anyone who's finished A Dance with Dragon knows what's happening next for almost every character, except for Cersei, Daenerys, and the people at the Wall. Our good friend Geek Furious chimed in there and said, that's if they decide to do any of that. I will say that there are a lot of people that we really don't know anything about. Uh, It ranges from very little clue to absolutely no idea with characters like Sansa, Theon, Dorne obviously took a huge left turn. Iron Islands, too. Iron Islands is in the mix. We don't know exactly what's going to happen there. Jon Snow, who knows? We can assume a lot. You know, stuff with Grayscale and how that's going to come into effect. Um, You know, King's Landing in general. Bran, we're basically caught up to Bran's story, and we have been for seasons now. But I I did notice while watching the premiere and thinking about this a little more uh, that there definitely is some stuff that either we do know or can project about based on what we know from the books. I think there's stuff there, but I also thought that it was really interesting that literally every single character's storyline is either different in the first episode is either different than the books or is ahead of the books in some way that we don't know if it's divergent or not. There's no single storyline where I'm like, oh yeah, this is just exactly what I knew, which I've been saying for for podcasts now that it makes me nervous, and it still makes me nervous, and it really was that Dorn thing, which again, we'll get to later, but that was the thing that had me like, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's been the big question for people who've read the books or who consider themselves fans of the books before they consider themselves fans of the show as to whether or not this is something that you can handle are you ready for it are you ready for a world of game of thrones where the show is doing stuff that the books have not done yet or never will do i know that this is a very touchy subject within house schwartz for example (laughs) terry's boyfriend mike who is a huge 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 fan of the books is done with the show will not be watching it which must make dinner conversations very awkward for you terry uh we've made it through one episode (laughs) We'll, we'll see how it goes. I, I saw Mike a few weeks ago, and I warned him. I was like, I think that you're going to get some spoilers, buddy. I've been very careful. Yeah. I have tread lightly. Tread lightly. Um, he has remained unspoiled to that one episode, I think. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see if we survive this season. We'll see. But, I mean, from my, from my perspective, watching that episode and seeing certain storylines move forward in the directions that they seem to be going, I think people who are regular listeners of the Book Club podcasts know this already, but for those of you who are just just hopping in. I tend to be fairly agnostic about this stuff. I feel like the show has to be the show. Show's got to be the best version of the show that it can possibly be, and I'm excited to see what the show, you know, decides to do, what David Benioff and Dan Weiss decide is the best course of action for the show. So I'm really open-minded for all of that, and watching the episode, I was really excited about some of the directions that they took the story in. So I'm pumped. I'm excited, but just to set the table, just to say if I did undersell how much book readers know during the live show. Let me say now that I do think that we know a little bit more than the show only folks. Um, So there is definitely going to be some stuff here in the book club podcast that you're going to want to chew on carefully. If you think that you can kind of just walk through here and be totally, totally safe. I'm not sure if that's totally, totally true. So just proceed with caution, proceed carefully. That's your only warning. We're going to start talking about the episode now. Are you ready, Terry? Let's do it. Um, First off, we did see the episode weeks ago. Terry and I were at the live premiere in Hollywood. Rob Sesternino was there as well. You got to meet Rob. 
We're going to have to post that photo in the comments here. We took a really cute photo together. We took a great photo together. looked pretty hot, all of us. Rob was sitting in front of Terry for like an hour before Terry knew who Rob was. He was like, hey, I'm Rob. And I was like, hey, like weirdo, thanks for (laughs) introducing me. Like I literally had no idea who he was and I'd just gotten there and I was with my brother. He was my plus one. He was like his first Hollywood event. And this guy is like, hey, I'm Rob. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like talking to my brother. And then literally an hour later, Josh sits in front of me and I'm like, Josh, what's up? And then I look at Rob. I was like, oh, you're Rob Sesternino. So like, we've never met before. I've been doing a lot of these podcasts. Like it's really cool. Classic Terry Schwartz folk. Uh, yeah. Not, uh, not awkward, but we took this really cute photo and hopefully he doesn't, he, I'm, I'm still doing book club. So hopefully he doesn't. So awkward. Too much. So awkward. I mean, he, <laughs> he did turn to me at one point. He was like, man, I think Terry doesn't like me. I was like, why? He's like, she didn't say anything to me for an hour. So mystery <laughs> solved. We figured that out. Well, mystery solved. Sorry, Rob, you rock. Yeah, it was great. We also <laughs> met Samuel Tarley. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's been my goal to get Josh to meet John Bradley, and you were really you were sort of against it. I was like, I'm going to bring him over here, and then I did it anyway. And it was like the quickest thing ever. I was like, Hey, John, I just want to introduce you to like some of my friends, Josh Wiggler, uh-huh. and you were like, Hey, dude. I was and like, then hey, that was what's it. up? What's up, John Bradley? And I wanted sh- you to do your impression. I know. Well, that was my fear. Was I thought because Terry is really bold and brash. They some in some circles they call her Terry the Bold, and Terry <laughs> would have been bold enough to go up to John Bradley and say, "Hey, this guy who's a friend of mine does an impression of you. Come check it out." And I'm not going to do a Samuel Tarley impression for Samuel Tarley. There's he no- would. He. I want to joke that he would be into it. He would just think. Big, it was weird. You know what? Having now <laughs> met him, I really don't think it would have gone over. Especially, really he was so. like about to leave too. I was like, I need to do this before yeah. I will. I will failed book club if I don't make this interaction happen. Well, but it did. You did. You did introduce us. It was for about thirty seconds. I got to shake Samuel Tarley's hand. Very cold handshake. Pretty much, I think the handshake you would expect. And I will say, it's sort of funny. So, so my brother just turned twenty-one. He like watches Game of Thrones, but hasn't read the books or anything like that. And he was was coming out to celebrate his 21st birthday with me in Los Angeles. And it just happened that it was over the weekend of the Game of Thrones premiere. And so I like surprised him. I was like, you're coming with me. And all you are stuff. the coolest sister on the planet. I know. I'm like, and he, you met him. You played it pretty chill. I was really proud of him, but I was most proud where like we went over and we were talking to John Bradley. And also uh, later we were talking to Daniel Portman who plays pod. Um, and Kevin, my brother is just like super chill. Like, just chatting him up, whatever. And afterwards, I was like, Kevin, did you know who those guys are? And he was like, no, just like some guys. I was like, no, they're in the show. And even then, he was like, whatever. And later, we're on our way home, and I show him photos of them in the show. I'm like, this is Sam. And he was like, wait, huh? And I was like, that's who you were talking to. This is the guy with the threesome. He was like, no way. It took him that long to connect who they were. That's it was incredible. Did he shake Sam's hand like I did? Yeah, he, he actually did he also acknowledge, chat with him. Did he acknowledge <laughs> Sam's cold hands? Um, not to his face, nor on a podcast, but now it's out there. It's the out world there. <laughs> it's out there. And I, I told this story to Rob and Antonio Mazar when we were about to record a podcast. And I, I said that to them. They're like, okay, so Samuel Tarley is cold hands. <laughs> Mysteries Confirmed. No. Hype level 9,000. He seemed like a really, really nice guy. Obviously very busy. Everybody very busy. But it was really fun to see everybody in their element and cool to talk to everybody. So lots of interview content rolling out for IGN and THR from both Terry and myself. Let's Hot talk plug. about Let's talk about the episode specifically because, Terry, you and I did not really get much of a chance to dive into it. I think you and I wanted to hold on to stuff until we got on the air for Book Club. But yeah. overall, just broad strokes, what was your take on the episode? Um, 
I had a really hard time processing it right afterwards. I it, remember like, that. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, I much. was like really not able to handle some of the stuff. And it I was fine up until they just again like getting right into it but they just like killed ario and doran and tristane and i was just like what like really nothing we we brought alexander siddick on this show and did nothing with him ario hota didn't even get a fight like all this stuff all this baggage i had as a fan of the books who didn't wasn't even crazy about the doran stuff but it was just so weird to see them cut that short um so in that side i'm still sort of having a hard time processing what they're going to do. I was glad that, you know, they had the payoff for Sansa and Brienne and they did this other cool stuff. Um, I think it was like a fine episode. I'm, I'm so excited about Brienne this season. So I'm really just looking forward to that. And I also really liked the way they ended it. It, it's not your typical, like huge game of Thrones moment. And every single comment on everything that I've written on IGN about it is like, Oh, boner killer. What a boner killer. Oh, like, are you into that? And I'm like, what? Commenters are the worst, but like seriously, oh my that's all I need to talk about it. Um, so yeah. I haven't seen that at all. Well, I don't know if different people frequent. Runner killer. I, oh my god! I do think that it was a really bold move. Isn't that to- Ramsey? Isn't he the boner killer? <laughs> no, he. Yeah, <laughs> they both are. They can end up together. Right. Um, but yeah, like having that reveal about Melisandre, I still stand by that I think she's going to end up bringing back Jon Snow. But I think if this is a season of her building back, you know, her faith and finding her faith and and really understanding what her role with the Lord of Light is at this this moment when she has zero faith left, it looks like. I think that's a really cool way to frame it and much better than just bringing John back like we all expect in the first episode. Yeah, I mean, because you and I, we talked a little bit earlier this year when we did one of our two off-season Game of Thrones book clubs, and we talked about, like, when is Jon Snow going to come back? I don't remember exactly what the bet was, but I know that I was on the early side. I may have even said by the end of the I think you said I think you said by the end of the episode. All right, so I lose. I'm sure that I have to wear a dress or something now. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, which is even better for the fact that this is audio only I know. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm doing it right now. You'll never know. Uh, I, I think what's what's great and i forget who said this but i know somebody i saw this comment online uh maybe it was a stray comment or somebody that that i know i forget who so i'm sorry that i'm not properly sourcing but one of the things that was great about this premiere is it's a table setter you know this episode is setting the table for things to come so much so that it literally sets Jon snow's body on a table uh you know he is he is literally on a table right now just waiting to be woken up and that story at the night's watch right now is moving at such a crawl it's moving at such a slow pace that you got to imagine it's happening soon and the pacing for the Night's Watch story is deliberately slow because at some point in the next one or two episodes, I would guess by the end of episode three, Jon Snow is back on his feet. See, I think it's going to be like five or six. Really I think, think we're going to so. have to wait. I think it's going to wait for a while and I think the most important line about that storyline in the episode is when Melisandre said she saw him fighting at Winterfell. Right. I think the season ends with Jon fighting at Winterfell. I think it's going to take a little while for her to gain her faith back and i think the focus at the night's watch is going to be on what specifically like what is davos and and the people protecting john snow what are they going to do with alistair thorne you know trying to get that body trying to get those last few mutineers of the mutiny uh in order and i think it's gonna be a little while before something big happens that 
pushes Melisandre to want to. I think that's going to be tough. I think it's going to be tough if they really stretch out that storyline up at the wall in terms of Alistair Thorne and the mutineers trying to bust down the door. I feel like that can only go for so many episodes. And once they have, and once they have Jon Snow's body, they're just going to toss it in the flames and he's going to be toast. So you can't imagine that they're going to be able to get that far, which is why I really think it's just kind of, it's kind of got to explode at some point pretty soon here. Uh, and I think we know, I mean, I'm assuming that the people who listen to this podcast, because we all are rabid fans, have watched the trailers for this season. But we do see that Davos is, you know, away from the Night's Watch. He's yeah. at House Mormont. Um, so obviously, if they're getting to some of that stuff, and then there's this big battle at the end that I'm guessing is going to be a bat eight or nine, episode eight or nine, you know, Boltons versus everyone else in the North sort of battle. Um, so yeah, I'm guessing that Davos is going to have to get on the road by five or six, but maybe, maybe. Maybe Mel just has some one-on-one time with Jon Snow's corpse in yeah. for a couple episodes. Oh, God. Yeah, that's going to get interesting. That'll get very interesting very quick. In terms of the Jon Snow coming back thing, one of the big theories in the books, lots of theories about how it could happen. One of the big book ones, because it's emphasized a lot, especially in A Dance with Dragons, that Jon Snow is a more powerful warg than he knows, that he hasn't really tapped into that at all, but he has this ability. It's, you know, it's, it's noted by Varamir Sixkins in that prologue chapter in A Dance with Dragons. And for John specifically, when he is stabbed to death at the end of his final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, there's that whole part where he looks at Ghost. So a lot of people think that he wargs into Ghost in the books. The show has really not done a lot in terms of John's connection with Ghost from that level. Obviously, there's camaraderie and kinship between the two. But in terms of John having the same abilities that someone like Bran has, we haven't really seen that. That being said, Ghost is super, super prominent in the episode. He's wailing at the beginning of the episode they bring him in is there any thought in your mind that the show is going there that john is possibly occupying ghost is ghost at all involved in this resurrection so far that you can tell i've never been crazy about this theory and never really subscribed to it i was always on the melisandre is going to bring him back like thor's mirror and beric dandarian bandwagon and i actually think that the show the premiere like explicitly didn't have that be what it was ghost acted like a sad dog that's owner just died who right. it has this connection with like he's howling this is supposed to take place what minutes after the end of season five i think very ghost quickly, reacts yeah. yeah ghost reacts exactly how you would expect a direwolf that's this close and connected with its master to act but i actually was a little curious for you and you know anyone else who's listening and wants to chime in uh when this goes up but did you think that it was telegraphing that at all because i know that i'm sort of predisposed to be against that theory. no i'm with you you know i i tend to be i think in the books um my inclination is that there is going to be something like that uh i think that there's a lot to suggest it in the books that john is somehow going to be spending some time in the dire wolf uh melisandre is not at the wall in the books the way that she is on the show and i think that this is something that benioff and weiss have talked about in interviews and a lot of other people have talked about as well that the show is not just caught up with the books, but is you know doing something that is spiritually respectful and faithful to the tone and story and you know the direction of George's story in the books, but it's going to be doing things in different ways. And I think that we could very easily see, and I think that the, it has to be the front-runner theory, especially at the end of this episode, that Melisandre is going to bring John back. I think that that's definitely the way that it'll play out on the show, and I think in the books there might be some warging element involved too that could ultimately you know require 
Melisandre to do something as well. But I think that there will be a warging component in the books that's just not going to be there on the show. I just feel like they haven't set it up at all. And if they were to set it up here in this first episode, and that was all that we got was just Ghost wailing, and now we're supposed to believe that John is chilling inside of Ghost, that would be really, really weird to me. But even the way they that ghost responded around John when he was like sort of nudging the body and stuff. I think if John was inside, that's not how he would be communicating. <laughs> Maybe he, was, he would just like be nosing his own yeah, body. Be like, Get back in there. Come how on. Did I, die? Just, I just got like <laughs> headbutt my way back into my body. Yeah. I do. I do want to say that I'm really happy, you know, Maybe it's just the way that they have been promoting it leading up to it. They've very much not lied about the fact that Jon Snow is dead. He's and we dead. See him. He's full on dead. He's and I like dead. the way that they've handled that. Like, I like that they're showing Jon Snow. Jon Snow's body isn't going anywhere, but he is dead. Um, and I'm, I'm like that they didn't just bring him back in that first episode. But also I like that they're showing us the body. They're keeping it around. They're keeping it a part of the story. So it won't be like they lied or it was a bait and switch. They were telling the truth. It's just where does it go from here? Right. I mean, truth to an extent. Obviously, like the whole like, yeah, he's not coming back. I think that part is, you know, that's where it gets a little thin. But we'll see. I mean, it's still not out of the realm of possibility that he doesn't. That feels really far-fetched to me that he doesn't come back. But we'll see. He didn't come back in the first episode. So the jury... nine to go one down nine to go uh let's start getting into melisandre a little bit we've got tons and tons and tons of questions and comments from people who wrote in before we started recording this one is from katja from denmark all the way from denmark who wrote in and said what's your take on the melisandre scene we've previously seen melisandre in the bathtub where she's talking with Celise, and the scene seems a little odd here she has her necklace on um do you think that it was a mistake or is the bathtub scene more than when melisandre's talking about illusions and poison she means she does not need the glamour because Celise is so strong a believer in the Lord of Light. Yeah, if you look back at that scene, have you seen this online, Terry? That yeah, there was an I, early I scene. Period, I think it's I like it. yeah, I think it's a season season three scene. I'm I'm blanking on the actual <laughs> episode, but there's a scene where Melisandre is in a bathtub and Celise Baratheon is there, and Melisandre is not wearing her amulet, but obviously is not an old woman. Um, I feel like you know, is that a continuity gaff? Maybe you could say that she's got her amulet on her ankle. It's like an <laughs> ankulet in the moment. I have thoughts about this. Yeah. Okay, so I read, uh, Joanna Robinson at Vanity Fair wrote, and I don't know if she got it from other people, but the theory, um, this reader suggested that is, you know, maybe because Salisa's faith is so strong, she sees what she wants to see, and right. Melisandre doesn't need a glamour to convince her otherwise. Uh, and that's actually sort of what Melisandre is saying in that scene, too. She's like, you know, some people just believe things so much that you don't need to convince him otherwise with magic um which would be an interesting way to twist it that would be um, like th- such a great long con on it right because you got to I- imagine that the writers knew about this with melisandre for a long time and like the the special you know three minutes that are you know kind of like the inside the episode that runs after the episode benioff and weiss are talking about how they've known that melisandre is quote-unquote several centuries old and they've known that for a while so and in that scene with Celise, they would have known that yeah because i mean chris van hooten if you go back to her, her this 2012 interview with Access Hollywood that ran before the premiere that year when she was introduced, like she says, Melisandre is over a century old, is, yeah. is 400 years old. So they've known for a while. I think, you know, going back to that inside the episode, uh, David Benioff or uh, Dan Weiss made a comment where he says she needed to look herself in the mirror, her true self in the mirror, which makes me believe Maybe she has control. She just has the ability to keep it up and take it down. And she doesn't necessarily need the necklace. She just needed to like strip down and take it all off and like 
really just connect with herself. Um, so I think that maybe there's a chance it's not connected to the amulet at all, even though that is a way to channel her power. But I also like the idea that Silise was just so nuts into, into R'hllor that she didn't need, she couldn't actually see Melisandre for what she was because her faith was so strong. I also like the ankulet idea. Yeah, I like, I definitely like <laughs> I the ankulet. I think that's good too. Melisandre's got some fashion. I know, yeah. But I mean, listen, we could get hung up on the amulet. I think that's getting hung up on the wrong thing. I think the thing that you want to get hung up on is Melisandre is several centuries old. This is confirmed. It is known. Boner killer. Yeah, I know he keeps saying that it's really getting awkward uh but i mean there is this you know there's this sort of theory that had been out there that melisandre is older than she lets on she has her first and only so far pov chapter in dance where she is talking about herself and thinking about herself as though she has seen a lot uh so people have been thinking about this forever and yeah i think if you do go back into some of those interviews carice van houten has been kind of bold and saying yeah she's old she's real old uh but i think it takes seeing her in old age makeup up and seeing her looking her true age which is untoldly old uh to really really be sold on it i think that this is a really big deal for a few reasons the obvious one i think that we could pick up on is if she is sort of at the end of her rope if she has lost stannis and you know had that whole thing that she believed in and now she's lost john who was kind of her backup plan and she saw him in the fires and she's been around for so long and she's questioning everything that she's ever experienced in that final moment in this episode you really can see where the story could go in a direction where Melisandre has to give up herself in order to bring someone like Jon Snow back. I think that there's a lot of thought out there right now that not only will Melisandre bring Jon Snow back, but it might be at the expense of herself. And there's also the question of like just how much has she seen? That's like, the other big four, one. Four hundred years old. Was she alive for the Doom of Valyria? That's like, a big one. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot. She of knows some stuff. There. Yeah. She knows some stuff, but how much does she know, and how important is that going to be? And yeah, she said she's been through a lot, and she's seen a bunch of this stuff before. But I'm really intrigued to find out, like, just how much has she seen? Is she going to be the person who gives us insights into these major events, or you know, was she just? off elsewhere we know she started off as a slave um so i'm really intrigued about her journey and i think if there was anything they could do to to humanize this character at this point after she's done done so many terrible things this was the thing to do we will never look at her the same way again yeah and what's cool about it too is like not only does it humanize her but it also really mythologizes her in yeah. like the same stroke because now we do know that she is just like ridiculously old and has seen so much and has so much knowledge and we've kind of questioned and I think it's worth questioning still, you know, just how powerful she is. Like, how much can she do? How much does she really know in terms of visions of the future? That stuff is still, you know, somewhat questionable, but we know at least in terms of her magical ability, she can make herself look really, really, really young. Uh, that's one. And we also know that she can do things like the shadow baby. So we've seen her magic in practice before without question. But now we also know that on top of that stuff, she has a wealth of historical knowledge. She has lived through some times. You, as you said, and I think that there's, you know, there's definitely something to pick apart here. Has she been, was she around for the doom of Valyria? Has she, did she see that firsthand? Has she seen dragons has she experienced stuff like that is that why she is so deeply invested in the lord of light was there an actual relore how is all of that going to come to bear and i think that melisandre in this ending has really opened up as a very potentially major major character on the show but i also think at the same point you could see that you know she could just be lights out for Jon snow to come back um yeah, I, ho- I-, I hope that she's around for a while because she's so much more interesting now 
Oh, I do too. And I, I think there was this weird comment that Carice, the actress who plays Melisandre, gave to Entertainment Weekly that I don't know if it was taken out of context or, or it was exactly what the context they provided, but she made a comment where she said that Melisandre doesn't know how her magic works, uh-huh. which is sort of weird, but also I could see that. I could see that she's sort of just winging it and stuff happens and stuff is happening more now. Um, so maybe that, maybe she needs to regain her faith and be reminded. Cause I believe we know that Thoros of Mir is in this uh, season again. I could be mistaken. I, I read that somewhere. Um, but maybe it just takes like running into them again or something like that to remind her, Oh, Hey, this is a thing that I can do. Right. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if that's something that happens. I mean, I got to imagine that's how Jon Snow comes back. I think you and I only disagree on when is it going to happen. Right. Um, so we'll see. Jury's out. We'll figure I'm that out. I'm looking forward to you to continue being wrong all season. <laughs> I think be it'll, it'll be fun. Right. I enjoy being wrong. It's more, fu- <laughs> it's more fun to be wrong because then you get pleasantly surprised. It's nice. Right. Uh, this was a question from our Philly. How pissed off are you guys that Davos isn't going to be guarding John's corpse at the start of the winds of winter? The onion Knight is the best wingman in Westeros confirmed. Definitely confirmed. Uh, I think that if everyone had a Davos in Westeros, we'd be in a much better situation across the board. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm bummed that he won't be guarding John's corpse. I I have faith in yeah. George. If and when he releases this book, um, I have faith that, you know, we're going to, it's just going to be awesome. Yeah, well, he's going to go to Cannibal Island and find Rickon Stark, and he's going to bring him back, and that's going to be pretty dope. Stagos. Are we ever going to get Stagos? On the show? No chance. No way. No way. If we're not getting strong Belwas on the show, we're not going to Cannibal Island. It's not happening. I love Cannibal Island. Yeah. It's my favorite vacation maybe, spot. Maybe we'll go to Cannibal Island in the Dornio sequel, but it's not happening. <laughs> it's not happening here. Uh, let's stick in the north. Let's stick with our Philly. Our Philly had a question. He said, Josh said he got emotional when Brienne gave her oath to Sansa. I cried like a six-year-old. I'm really curious what the audience reaction was to that beat at the premiere. Will we oh see that God. moment play out in the books before the story is closed? Uh, so just to take the first part of it, that was definitely the loudest moment in the auditorium when that played at the premiere. No question. The, yeah, the entire... So it was in Grauman's Chinese Theater, which is this really, really big uh, single-screen theater in main Hollywood and I I'm pretty sure every single person in there cheered it was was such a big moment it was awesome because it's been first of all it took over a season for that to happen and also nothing good has happened like if you look back at season five there are no big good moments it was just like bad thing after bad thing after bad it was a dark season grim dark season for sure and especially for Sansa especially for Sansa but like I challenge you to go back other than Sam and Gilly having sex for the first time. I really don't think there was anything actually good that happened. Hey, Tyrion and, and Danny met. That was fun. That was good. Yeah, okay. All right, two. We got two good things. Danny decided not to kill Jorah. That was kind of happy. I, see, I don't I don't know if I count that. We That's sort like of kind of maybe two. a little bit got a strong Belwaz cameo. <laughs> That's true. That's the number. Okay. Three. You're, you're pulling a Calmoro on me right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Happy things happened last season. Right. Um, but I, I think it was really smart to have that happen fairly early on in the premiere. And also at a moment when you're like, no, no, where's Brienne? Like Santa and Theon can't get caught again. Oh, 
there she is. Right. Yeah. So it was great. It was a definite emotional roller coaster. I really was on the verge of tears when she's doing the oath and everything. That was really great. Uh, it's just great to see Sansa get a victory. Sansa very, very rarely wins. We talked about Sansa quite a bit in our second off-season podcast that you and I did, Terry, when we had Maester Goldner dictating the course of our conversation. <laughs> if you guys didn't listen to that podcast, go back. It's a fun one. But Maester Goldner, who had said that Sansa is the worst character in Game of Thrones empirically, he was upset uh, with our with our hot takes on uh, on his hot take on Sansa, and he wrote a defense of why he feels Sansa is the worst. He sent this to me a few weeks ago. We haven't had a chance to read this on the air, but I think it's relevant now. <laughs> Maester Goldner had written, first and foremost, let me express my extreme appreciation and near embarrassment over your February 8th Maesterclass Book Club podcast. A man is flattered. In that same episode, I was exorciated over my belief that Sansa is the worst. T. Schwartz in particular takes issue with it, noting that Sansa isn't even the worst Stark child, offering up Rickon as a specific rebuttal. This, somewhat ironically, proves my point. According to several minutes of intense Googling, ranked by screen time, Sansa is the sixth most prevalent character across all five seasons of Game of Thrones. The top five read like the Mount Rushmore of the series, Tyrion, Jon, Daenerys, Cersei, and Arya, with Sansa at number six. Putting aside characters that are no longer with us, further down the list we see Littlefinger at 11, Brienne at 16, Varys at 20, my secret girlfriend Marjorie at 23, and so on. Way down at 91, we find Rickon Stark. Although Sophie Turner is lovely, portrays her character well, and is a solid follow on Instagram, anyone who's closely followed, followed the series knows that Sansa is forever the pawn or plaything of someone more powerful or proactive. At, at, at every turn, something happens to Sansa. She's never the one taking the action. Be it the books or the show, one can point to Joffrey, Tyrion, Littlefinger, Ramsay, and myriad others as the architects of her fate. At worst, she's a victim. At best, she's a prop. In stark opposition, pun intended, to Sansa, we see the younger Arya, the less advantaged Jon, and even the handicapped Bran take their fates in their own hands. As we all know, in the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Rob Stark lost, but was interesting. Sansa isn't even playing the game. So why does the show spend so much of my precious, precious 10 hours a year on her? Do something worth my time or get off my TV, girl. Therefore, it is still my firm belief and assertion that Sansa Stark is the worst Game of Thrones character with respect to screen time. That's from Maester Goldner. I would now I say... I have, thoughts. I have thoughts as well. Why don't you go first? Okay. First of all, this was, thanks Facebook memories. I uh, saw an article from five years ago that Josh Wiggler approved Terry Schwartz to write at MTV. That was right after back when the, you were my writer, back when I was your writer, um, which was the right after the season one premiere of Game of Thrones aired. HBO picked it up for a season two. And for whatever reason that we thought was a smart idea, I basically wrote an article completely like setting up what season two would be after everyone had only seen one episode. I don't know why I thought this was a smart idea. That's why but, I say you're Terry the Bold. <laughs> but in that, I totally was like, uh, and Sansa's just going to continue being annoying. So it was really funny. I was like, oh, I really didn't like Sansa back then. I'm so on board the Sansa bandwagon um, this time. And But I did see, like, I ran an article about Sansa's big win in the premiere, and a lot of the responses that weren't like, oh, Sansa's great, were... She didn't do anything. Right. She just hid and then Brienne showed up and then Brienne pledged herself and that was it. And I, I get that. But I do think not only is it a win for Sansa, but I take issue with the idea that Sansa isn't playing the game. She's been trained by the best people who've been playing the game around. Cersei, you know, whatever, and Littlefinger. Um, 
She's and been she's at seen, school, basically. She's been at school and she's it's seen like all the worst mistakes. school ever, but she's been at school and she's been learning much in the way that Arya has been learning from tons of different masters. Her type of learning doesn't involve stabbing people in the eyes and the throat and all sorts of horrible things that Arya does, but she's been learning how to play the game. She's been learning how to rule badly and how to react to that stuff. And how I do, to be smart about stuff. Right, right. And I, I think, think, yeah, I think, you know, Brienne, she comes in here, she does save the day and it's not Sam of proactively saving herself in this moment. But I think what the potential has been set up to be is why Sansa fans are so strongly supportive of Sansa is because now she's really primed and ready for everything that we know that she's capable of. Like totally. she's, she's that- now in the position to be a proactive character who is going to rule, who is going to really be a prominent, prominent person in the North who could possibly bring hope back to the North. I think that a lot of the people who are fans of Sansa, a big, big piece of it is about the potential of Sansa. Yeah. And so that's what I'm going to, I was going to say, like, I think that having Brienne on her side gives her a sword, which she hasn't really had before. And I'm going to quote some of what Sophie Turner said to me that was um, queuing up the rest of season six after this reveal. She said her motivation going forward is revenge on all the people that have done her wrong. The fact that she now has someone behind her now now foreshadows the fact that she's going to start building a group of people who really listen to her for the first time. It's important that the first one of them is a woman and that's her only gateway into making the men listen to her. It definitely foreshadows good things for her. And then she says after the fact that it's quite a season of revenge for Sansa, she says she definitely builds up her own allies in this season. She's not gathering an army, but it's basically about her trying to make people listen to her and people realizing that she knows the politics of this game and that she knows how these things work. She probably has strategies better than a lot of the other people who are actually trying to fight the war with war, but she actually has the strategies and the tactics. It's about her trying to make people listen. So I think we're going to see a lot of Sansa doing stuff. Hater Goldner. <laughs> Haster Goldner. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think so too. And I think that this is, that's what's really cool about this. I think that a lot of Sansa's journey has been such a rough ride. Uh, you know, just countless horrible things. You, you know, you could spend a really long time going over every single terrible thing that has happened to Sansa Stark. But I think that it's all been leading the way for Sansa to be in a place where she can combine all of those experiences, all of that rage that she potentially has, and channel it into something really super super positive and awesome and strong. And I'm very excited for where Sansa's story can go here. Um, we had, uh, we had this question from Muaz Muhammad, who is writing in all the way from South Africa. He wrote, uh, do you think the Sansa scene from the premiere justifies her story arc from season five, or could we have gotten to a similar, similar situation without having her go through that terrible experience? And I would say that, you know, in retrospect, I think all these terrible things really do inform who Sansa is now. Um, I think that she has to go through all of that stuff in order to be primed and ready to be the Sansa Stark of today. Yeah, I mean, I think she, like Brienne even says, I offer this to you again. Again. Brienne had already offered this to Sansa. Sansa thought that she was in a place where she could do it all on her own. I think the biggest lesson, and it was a horrible lesson, and I still have a lot of issues with the the whole Sansa rape, but I think the biggest lesson is that she can't, she needs allies. She can't just do it her own. She's not strong enough, and she needs to create this foundation. Um, But I do think, you know, I'm going to jump over into talking a little bit about um, Batman v Superman, not in a spoiler way, but part of that movie was a reaction to criticisms that people had. Um, But 
in a way that it was like punishing the characters for them. And I'm talking specifically about like a lot of people complained in Man of Steel about the way that Superman just destroyed the city. And it was more complaint at the movie than at the character. But in Batman v Superman, a lot of the movie is the people, the characters within the film taking Superman to task for what he did. And I feel like Game of Thrones is sort of doing it in a similar way, both with the Dorn storyline and a little bit with the Sansa Brienne one, where like people had a lot of complaints about the way the showrunners wrote the season and they're sort of reacting by taking it out on the characters. Uh, and again, that's more about the Dorn thing, the way they just like killed off the characters because stuff didn't work, but it felt like it was punishing the characters instead of saying, Hey, maybe you guys didn't give your strongest writing. You think that that's why they did what they did with Dorn. You think that it was a reaction to the story not working? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're like, okay, we have these characters. We need we need to prove to people that like stuff's going to happen. So we're just going to jumpstart it by killing off all these characters that they spent so much time on last season. Yeah, but it's such a good choice. <laughs> you know, I know, but I'm like, okay. Yeah, you know, you got to well, be flexible. Got to be flexible with. Your I, I am flexible, but I, I think no, that, not you. I mean, oh, as a yeah. storyteller, yeah, I think yeah. as a storyteller, you got to know when something's not working. It's like, all right, well, how do we fix this thing that's broken? Well, right. let's kill everybody who sucks. Did Did Doran suck? I, he wasn't great on the show. They weren't really doing anything with him. I guess that's true. Yeah, well, we'll get into Doran in a minute. I don't. I, I'm. I just want one more thing on Sansa. This was from Brian Payne, who wrote in and said, "What do you think? Is there any chance that Sansa's storyline takes over the Lady Stoneheart storyline? I can totally see her traveling the countryside and exacting revenge." You just mentioned how Sophie Turner was talking about how this is kind of a season of vengeance for Sansa. Is that the direction that we're going? Is this why we don't have a Lady Stoneheart on the show? Is it because Sansa is really going to be occupying a lot of that same? role where she is just like hacking and slashing at Bolton's and Frey's and Lannister's left and right. I don't think it's why we don't have Lady Stoneheart, but I think it's getting around not having Lady Stoneheart. And I totally think she's filling that role, even down to the fact that uh, that Brienne is now with her. Like, where is Brienne right now in the book? She's with Lady Stoneheart. Um, so I totally think, and we did get a tease in one of the trailers that there, there's going to be some Walder Frey this season. And we see now that we know that Brienne and Pod are with Sansa. And I also asked Sophie about that. I was like, does the fact that they're together now, are they going to be a package deal for the rest of the season? She said, yes. And then I said, okay, so does that mean that she's with them when they go to the, to River Run and are with the Tullys? And she was like, uh, Uh, (laughs) I I definitely read into the fact that they end up there. Um, so yeah, I totally, I th- I hope we get some Frey revenge this season. I think that'd be fun. I think that'd be really good. Speaking of Podrick, Brennan Fitzpatrick had written in, why does the show, if they're making this pod squad a thing <laughs> where Brienne and Sansa are now a team, pretend that Sansa and Podrick are strangers. They know each other quite well from their time in King's Landing when Podrick was squire to her freaking husband. They could at least smile at each other or have a look of recognition. Fitzy's really upset that Sansa's not paying <laughs> attention to Podrick. Uh, I, you I know what? Sansa paid attention to Podrick back then though. yeah probably not and I think you know give Sansa a break Sansa wasn't exactly stoked to be in that marriage to begin with even though Tyrion we know is not such a bad guy uh she even wa- though we know Pod is awesome yeah also her like whole family got killed shortly after she was married to Tyrion so she really was in the wrong headspace uh and like she just you know she just reunited with Podrick here and very narrowly got you know was able to escape getting brought back to the Boltons. I feel like her head is in a different place. If she's not hanging out with Podrick in like one of these next couple of scenes, then I think we can be like, what does she have against Podrick? What did Podrick do to her? 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I think we will. Like, I saw, also saw a complaint, like, why didn't she ask Brienne about Arya or vice versa? And we got a tease in, like, the scenes from next week's episode that it seems like that's going to happen. Right. So I have a feeling that we're going to get some of that. It was more having this really land that moment of triumph. We're setting things up. There. We're setting things up. That's what's going on in this episode. You know, not all, I'm not stoked every, for not it. tons of follow through on everything, but we're getting there. We're getting there. I like the pod squad. I think that's good. Uh, all right. You want to talk Dorn? Let's talk Dorn. And you're not alone, Terry Schwartz in not being like at least being uncertain about how you feel about Dorn if not outright mad about Dorn this is from Michael Folletti who said do you guys think that this was always the plan with the Dorn storyline after the reception they got for it last year it's so bad uh, Fitzpatrick also had written in says so bye bye Dorn is that the end of this storyline I'm pretty pissed that they made Ariel Hota this hulking badass dude and then did nothing with him is there anything they can do to save this Dornese not of a plot thread uh, I think a lot of people Paul Silva calls it a complete mess, this storyline. A lot of people not exactly pumped about the Dorn thing. I kind of loved it. Can I tell you what makes me the most annoyed about it? Yeah, sure. How the hell did Obara and Nymeria end up on that boat? That's the weirdest thing I know. They're really it's good so rowers. Bad. They're really good it's rowers. It's so bad. I, like, <laughs> to, me, to me, again, I think it's just punishing the characters for the writer's failure. Like right. there was nothing. They were like, Oh, people hated it. Let's just kill them. And that'll solve it. Like, look, stuff's happening. And I'm like, those were the characters I liked better than the sand snakes. Like kill the sand snakes. They aren't any cooler now. Like even with that bad scene, obviously don't kill the sand snakes, but I don't think Dorne is gone. I honestly was really surprised that it was back at all in the first episode, given how poorly it was received. Um, I do think it's going to, I don't even know what it's really setting up. Like, obviously, Cersei is going to be pissed, but it seems like so much of Cersei and Jamie's focus is going to be in King's Landing, right. fighting the Faith Militant and the High Sparrow. So I, I don't know what they're going to do with Dorne. I don't expect it's going to be the last that we see of it. Oh, absolutely not. They wouldn't have had it in the premiere if this was the last we were going to see of it, and they wouldn't have ended it in such a way if this was totally the the final word on Dorne. I think that they had it in the premiere because Dorne is going to factor into things so um, like i would much rather see iron island at this point well, we're and, gonna get there we're gonna get there yeah too. and I, but i was just gonna say like talk about something going completely off book we have we have no idea super, <laughs> super off book we're way off book on that just to get everybody on the same page of where we are on book we had gotten a request from jake janikowski to kind of reset the table for what the doran storyline is in the books and kind of just broad strokes where Prince Doran seems like he is not doing anything on the show because I guess he really wasn't doing anything on the show. That drives me nuts. I know. that's oh, Or maybe we're going to find out that he was doing things and Hilarious Anne is going to look like a real jerk. Anyway, we'll find out. But in the books, it's all a ruse. He is just playing the part of a peaceful politician. He has been scheming against the Lannisters ever since Alia Martell was killed during uh, the raid on King's Landing where the Mad King died and everything like that. He has been, you know, it's been long simmering vengeance. Uh, he has been really coming after them in his own subtle way. He had been trying to forge a marriage pact between Viserys Targaryen and Arianne 
Martell, who's his daughter in the books, who does not exist on the show. He sends Quentin Martell across the world to go marry Daenerys. We all know that does not go super well for poor Quentin. He gets scorched by fire. I kind of liked how Tristane dies on the show, how it's sort of similar, obviously not in the Dragonfire sense, but at least in the sense of like, oh, it's just a very quick, out of nowhere, sort of jokey ending for this poor character. I liked that a little bit. But that's basically what Doran Martell is up to in the book, is he's trying to team up with the Targaryens. He wants to back the Targaryens on their quest to take out the Lannisters and to you know restore them to their rightful place and have Dorne in a position of power in an alliance with those people. Do you think that we're going to move in that direction at all on the show? Are we going to see Ilaria Sand at some point wanting to link up with Daenerys? Do you think that that's something that that could be driving towards? I don't know. I feel like Tyrion is going to replace Quentin's role. I think is he just going to get burned alive? No, but I think that he's going to, well, I guess maybe he's not, but that's certainly what they're No, he's going to get consumed by fire and he's going to be totally fine. And then everyone's going to be like, oh my God, Tyrion is a Targaryen. <laughs> oh my God, going back to that theory again. It's happening, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. I'll bet on it. I'll bet on it. You know yeah. I'm always wrong, so take that action, Schwartz. I don't think they're going to combine this Dorn storyline with anything. I think they're going to forge a new path, but I sort of go back to the same criticism that I've had since the beginning that's becoming more prominent in recent seasons, which is when they go off book, it's usually for less, like the writing is lesser all the way down to like, how did Obara and Nymeria end up on that boat? It doesn't, it's like such a huge jump in logic. It doesn't make any sense. I think that was a large part of why Dorn didn't work is because they went completely off book and made up their own thing and it just wasn't as strong or well constructed a story. Um, so I'm nervous about what they're doing. I would be okay if we, they did end up keeping the Dorn stuff a little bit to a minimum, but yeah, I'm just, I'm not optimistic about that. <laughs> I, hear, I hear what you're saying. I think with the term, you know, in terms of like when the show is going off book, like that's not a great thing. I don't agree with that. I feel like the show went wildly off book with Hard Home in season five. And that's one of the greatest things that we've ever that's seen on true. Game of Thrones. So I think that there have been a lot of instances where the show has made choices that are very different from the books that have been really, really strong, solid choices. I do think that Dorne was just a hard one for them to translate onto the show. And I think a big piece of that is actually because Dorne is so complicated in the books that you can't really faithfully adapt the Dorne storyline without short shrifting a bunch of other show, uh, other storylines when you only have 10 hours to tell the story of Game of Thrones per season. Um, so I think that Dorne is just by its nature a really, really tough thing. We are kind of in, as uh, Brendan describes it, a Doranese knot right now. Um, I think that investing in Indira Varma, who plays Ilaria Sand, she plays that character with such ferocity that I think that she's really the character that Pops the most in the Dorne storyline. And she's the one that has for the audience's connection since she was there to see the Red Viper die. She's the one that we can understand feels so venomous and cantankerous that I feel like to invest in her as the lead character in Dorne, that makes a lot of sense for me. Also with Dorne's, you know, proud tradition of really strong women being leaders and being rulers in Dorne, just historically, if you go back and read about the history of Dorne, I like that that's kind of coming back into play here. And if you're not going to have 
Arian Martell on the show. I think that Hilaria Sand is an interesting, you know, kind of analog for that character. So I'm open to it. I thought that the Sand Snakes were really kind of goofy last season. I thought that at least, you know, giving them the chance to kill some people and do it in kind of a dangerous way in this first episode is a move that's a course correction. I'm fine with it. I kind of really like it. I'm excited to see where they go with it, but I've been burned by Dorn before, so I'm not getting too excited about it, but I'm not super negative on it the way that I think a lot of people are. Yeah, it's it's that jump in logic that is really sat. You know, sometimes it happens. You know, they're really fast I, yeah. rowers. You know, they did what they had to do. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I have hope for Iron Islands. Hopefully it's not what Dorne was last year. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about Iron Islands because the Iron Islands aren't featured in the episode. But as we set our sights on Meereen, there's a big moment in the Meereen storyline in this episode where Tyrion and Varys are walking through Meereen and they're kind of surveying the scene and they're seeing what's going on with everything. And it ends with all of the ships are on fire. Uh, Tyrion says something to the effect of like, oh, I guess we're not going to be sailing to Westeros anytime soon. And I hadn't picked up on it at the time. I didn't even really see what had happened. I was so focused on other stuff during the, uh, during the premiere. And also on the second watch, it just wasn't thinking about it until I saw it a third time. It's like, oh, they setting burned all the ships. That, setting up that year on Greyjoy. They're, yeah, they that was the first thing. all the ships, of course. Yeah, uh, that's what I thought because that was the big question last season was like, why would they need Euron right. if she has this fleet? And I, I wonder if, you know, they decided later that they would do Iron Island stuff because I think we sort of got the sense for a while that they weren't going to do it at all. Um, but, it, you know, I bought it. Yeah. I didn't think that it was, you know, a, a course correction or anything like that. I thought that these people are rising up against Danny. She's not there. It totally would make sense for them to take it out on her by burning her fleet. And then that's a great way to to make Euron into an important character um, who might have a bigger role to play later. Yeah, well, it's it certainly is a move that I hadn't thought about at the time. A bunch of you guys had written in and noted that this is probably where they're going. Paul Silva wrote in a couple of seasons ago, there was speculation that with the ships that Dario got from Yunkai, the Greyjoys wouldn't be needed to bring Daenerys to Westeros. Guess that ship is burned. So will the Greyjoys end up following a similar plot in the show and in the books, maybe with Asha replacing Victarion or Yara on the show, as it were? Uh, Luke Ten Velde had written in as well to say, with the ships in Marine being burned, do you think the Iron Islanders are going to Marine to take Danny to Westeros. Uh, I've had, I, again, I really hadn't thought about it, but I think that that really adds up. Why else have the Greyjoys on the show this season? You got to imagine that they have some sort of big-ish deal. Being lined up with Daenerys would be a big-ish deal. Uh, I think that having Euron, whether he's the one who goes directly to Marine and meets Daenerys there, or have it be someone like Yara Greyjoy who goes and aligns herself with Daenerys there, I do think that the Greyjoys are going to be instrumental in getting Daenerys's army back to Westeros. And on top of that, Terry, do you think that the Greyjoys could fall in line behind Danny? Is that a possibility? Wait, can we just go back to the idea of Yara and Danny That's together pretty cool and how up. amazing that up. would be? Yeah, that'd be um, I, I'm curious if they do mix and match some of the characters, because I could see, you know, does Theon stay with Brienne and Sansa or does he go back to the Iron Islands? Like is, is Yara going to be the bigger player? Cause she's someone we can connect with more. Or how much is uh, Euron going to pop on screen? It'll, it'll be interesting to see if she's actually instrumental in any, if the, sorry, if the Greyjoys are instrumental right. in any way, because I feel like, Tyrion being an advisor there and Jorah, if he makes it back, like would be pre and Varys would be predisposed to not work with the Greyjoys unless they're truly desperate. Um, 
So I don't, I don't know if I feel safe predicting that far ahead. A couple of days ago, I was predicting in our uh, IGN podcast about Game of Thrones, like, oh, and then Sansa will come in and like lead this big army and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, I'm doing the thing back in season one when people were like, oh, and then Ned is going to save the day. And then he gets beheaded in episode nine. Right. So I'm like nervous about guessing too far ahead, knowing that we don't have any source material. I know, but that's why it's great. I know because we're all. I'm just going to be too optimistic, and then I'm going to be so sad, and I'm going to be crying on one of these things. It's going to be a total. Oh, it's going to be fun! I can't wait for the tears. (laughs) Bring me your tears, Terry Schwartz. I need them. Um, Some other things that are happening in Mirene. We see the Red Priest, who's there in Mirene. We also see in a um, in one of the trailers for the future of season six. There was another Red Priestess who was in Mirene, who's talking to Tyrion and Varys at one point. We saw in season five yet another Red Priest who Tyrion and Varys encounter in Volantis. It really seems like this could be secretly the season of the Lord of Light. I'm I'm into it. I think that especially if they're bringing Thoros back to have some big thing happen magically. I think this is going to be the season for magic more than the Lord of the Light. Lord of Light. And this is just going to be one aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. That would be awesome. Uh, trying to get some quick hits here in this portion of the storyline. Jorah's grayscale, that looks like it's still pretty bad. <laughs> Doesn't look great. Not not great for Sir Jorah. Not great for Sir Jorah. Were you impressed with Sir Jorah's ability to find Danny's ring in the middle of the Great Grass Sea? Literally just like a needle in a haystack type of thing. We've situation. been making jokes about this for so long that I'm like, I don't even know if I have any left. But I buy that more than I buy the Dorn ship fiasco. <laughs> okay. So there's that. That's, That's more the best way that you. they can make me overlook it. That's more plausible for you. What do you think of Danny encountering the Dothraki and meeting up with Kalamoro and the fact that she is going to be sent to Vias Dothrak to the temple of the Dosh Kaleen, where she is going to be with all the other Khaleesi widows? Let's talk about how she brings up the prophecy about her baby again. Yeah, that comes I wonder back if that's, up. I wonder if that's going to end up being important. And if you read, if you read the synopses for the next two episodes, um, the third episode has a line that says, "Danny sees or Daenerys sees her future, Bran sees his past." So I think that's going to be our definitely our flashback Bran episode. But I wonder if Danny, if that's her arriving at Vistothrock, um, which I think could be really cool. Like, what a way nobody puts Danny in a corner. Nobody but, puts Danny in a corner. Yeah, I wonder. I'm really curious because I don't really have any predictions what they're building towards that there other than just humbling these characters again. I wonder if there's some magic going on at Vistoth Rock or if she sees Quaith. I wonder if there's something going on with her there again or we're going to see some sort of magic tie-in yeah, there Quaith? later. Where's Quaith been at? I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, what ever happened with that whole theory that we were also convinced would be important? Yeah, well, she's been just, I don't know, she's been hanging out. Maybe she's a bicycle rock. As you do. Uh, This was something interesting, actually, to go back to Meereen a little bit, thinking back on season two, uh, which is, I think most people would agree season two is probably the weakest season of Game of Thrones overall. Uh, So it's like, why would we even really think too hard about season two? Do we want to return to any (laughs) of that stuff? But Varys does say something along the lines in this episode when he's talking to Tyrion that the Sons of the Harpy are taking orders from somebody. Is that somebody, do you think? Is it possible? I was trying, you know, we were talking about this on the live show with Rob, and I really didn't have any big ideas in the moment of like who could that be who do we know 
on the show so far that would be a fairly big reveal or a decently sized reveal at least in terms of people we know that could be running this thing but could it be and i'm gonna botch the pronunciation is it zaro joan daxos from the greatest city in the world from quarth uh is it possible that he because he does appear in a dance with dragons and shows up here and is not thrilled with what danny has done in slaver's bay and basically declares war uh is it possible that he is the guy who is engineering this situation with the sons of the harpy and is this any sort of long simmering vengeance between him from season two all the way to now is that something that you thought well she left him to die she did so he probably if he got out of there wouldn't be so psyched about it yeah it could be him you made me i was like is it little finger does he have little birds that go that far um i hope it's someone that we know and not someone that we don't i don't know if it's our i thought they were pretty clear that he had died then but I don't think that there's you know, I don't think they're super clear about it. I think that, you know, that's certainly the implication that no one is coming for them. No one is coming to unlock that door. But I feel like somebody could just like come along and be like, hey, is somebody in there? They're like, yes. Oh, thank God. Okay, now let's go get Danny because we're mad. I like that theory. I would not have thought of it, but I I could be on board with it you know, and bring him he, back in play. He is a power player in this situation in the mirror and he's not in the book. Right. Yeah. Um so just like thinking about who that could possibly be, he to me seems like the most likely suspect. I don't really know why you would want to dip back into that particularly well just because it didn't really work so well on the show. But it's just the first thing that came to my mind uh after Well we'll know if there's a previously on that <laughs> Right, yeah, that'll <laughs> that tip goes it. back yeah. to that. <laughs> it was Benjamin Stark. Benjamin Stark's Benjamin Stark in charge of the time. Sons of the Harpy. <laughs> it was him. It was him. Uh, we haven't talked at all about, really, we didn't talk at all about King's Landing, but we also didn't talk about Arya. Did you have any thoughts on either of those storylines before we wrap up? Um, I like the wave stuff that it seems like they're building towards. Not too much happened, really, in King's Landing, I would say, or in uh, in Bravos. Uh, I like what they've been teasing of this sort of conflict with the waif and with Arya. And I also believe, and again, I could be misspeaking, but I believe that um, Tom, who plays Jockin, said at some point that we're going to find out what the deal is between him and Arya, uh, Jockin and Arya. So I'm excited for that there, but I didn't think it was too exciting. Just proof that she's still blind. She's not, still blind. She still woke blind. in the morning. She was not blind. Um, in King's Landing, I again thought that it was interesting that um, that Cersei brought up the prophecy again and how Tommen is her last child standing. Uh, but then Jamie is like, prophecy, we'll do whatever we want. And right. I was like, that's sort of a prophecy too, right? If you're going to shirk that off, Cersei says a line about how he had said something to her earlier that ended up proving to be prophecy. And I just feel like that whole idea of them against the world is going to backfire, but also be a little bit prophetic in some ways. Well, there's a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy on this right. show too, I think. And I think yeah. what, what's interesting, I don't know if this part of it made it onto the show just off the top of my head, but it's certainly prominent in the book, you know, this idea of the Valonqar, you know, the younger brother, the younger mm-hmm. sibling that's going to kill Cersei at one point in time. A lot of, you know, her interpretation certainly is that it's going to be Tyrion. A lot of readers think that it's going to be Jamie because Jamie's the younger twin. And it's hard to imagine why Jamie would willingly 
kill Cersei, but if if Jamie is starting to act sort of emboldened and a little bit more full Lannister, as I've been kind of describing him, seemingly trying to live up to the shadow of his father, of Tywin, could his actions point in the direction of the Lannisters just losing everything? Could Cersei lose as a, as a result of that? And would it be a satisfaction of the prophecy on that level? I think that that's a possibility. Uh, but Jamie definitely seems to be like all in on the Lannister thing right now. Yeah, and I I have been thinking about this too. I think that they've done a really good job or a really bad job, sorry, of developing the back and forth of Cersei and Jamie. Like now they're back to being on the same side. I think if you only took out their scenes from the past couple of seasons, it wouldn't add up. Um, so I don't really get where Jamie's at right now or he's upset. He lost his daughter upset, and she like yeah. was so happy to be her, you know, be his daughter. And then she dies in front of him. And it's like the first good thing that's happened to him in forever. And it's just, he's just back to that with Cersei. I don't know. Yeah. I hope they get into it a little bit more because I feel like he changed so much when he was with Brienne. And maybe part of that is just me shipping Brienne and Jamie and right, right. loving, loving that pairing. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm not crazy about this version of Jamie. He had been a character that we liked so much. And again, maybe that's sort of the point, but, um, so I'm, easy, so easy to forget that that dude pushed poor Bran Stark out a window in the very first episode. No, I don't think it's that. I think that they did do a good job of having him learn something and, yeah. and change. And now he's sort of back to square one. And I didn't really get why he backslid and maybe it was just losing his daughter is enough to send him running back to Cersei and saying, you know, it's us against the world, screw the rest of them. Um, but I, I hope that it's something that is explored more because I think theirs is a really interesting relationship and I would like to spend some time with it, not just with them talking, but with us understanding their actions and, and seeing why that is a good or bad thing to have them against everyone else. Seems like we'll get that. I think, I think yeah. that's certainly where Jamie's storyline seems to be pointing at least in the near term. Who knows if any Riverlands action is coming up <laughs> with him. That would be fun. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see how all of that shakes out. Terry, anything else from the episode? Or are you good? I'm just excited for Bran. <laughs> I know. Bran's coming back next week. That's going to be really fun. We know from the trailer, we know from the trailer, the Tower of Joy stuff is coming. Um, I feel like based on episode descriptions that that could be, I mean, it could be as soon as next week. It could be as soon as this upcoming episode, but I think at least by episode three, it seems like we're going to get a little bit of the Tower of Joy. That should Weird be really is it gonna fun. going to be if we get R plus L equals J confirmed on this show? Has to happen. Has to happen. It's going to be so crazy. It's I'm going to be, be so excited. It's going to be the best day write, ever. It's going to be I'm fantastic. Write every article about it. Uh, Every single <laughs> article I write that week is going to be so. Uh, it's going to be fun. Hey, you know what that means? Hey, hey. You know, you, you, heard you heard about this? You heard about uh, this? Everybody knows at this point, but it's going to be fun if it's confirmed. I think that it will be at some point this season, if not really soon. Terry, I think hashtag wise, you're so excited. Let's go with hashtag Terry the Bold. Terry the Bold is back. Oh, she's feelings. She feeling. Is, she has returned. The book club is back. This is going to be happening every week throughout the season. We will be talking about the show really fun stuff getting it back into action here terry follow terry on twitter she's at terry underscore schwartz that's terry with an i i'm at round howard subscribe to what we're doing postshowrecaps.com slash got itunes or postshowrecaps.com slash itunes for everything we're doing on postshow recaps we'll be back next week with another episode of the book club until then take care everybody goodbye